0: Technology. Nothing's getting better.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. My name is Michael Calori. I'm a senior editor here at Wired, and I am joined, as always, by my co host, Wired senior writer Lauren Good. Hello. Hello, Lauren. It's great to be here. As all, like every week, <laughs> like, every, like week. every week, you're like a captive. Um, also joining us this week is Wired's digital director Brian Barrett. Hi guys, thank you so much for having me back.
0: Yeah, you must have done something right the last time because we only waited about a month to have you back on, whereas before I think you said it was what a year and a half.
2: At least a year and, <laughs> and a half, maybe two years.
0: You're so thrilled. I really
2: I am improving.
0: We're thrilled to have you back.
1: Uh, This week's show is about the news beyond our usual gadget sphere and beyond the world of Silicon Valley that we typically cover. It's about what happens when new tech is introduced in critical situations, like in the Iowa caucus. As it turns out, there wasn't really an app for that or there was, it just didn't really work as intended. Uh, Later on, we are going to be talking about the chaos of the coronavirus and the ways in which the outbreak is influencing the economy. This is something that's going to hit the consumer electronics world particularly hard since so much of the manufacturing and production of the products that we use is concentrated in China. We're also going to talk about misinformation about the virus, how to cut through the conspiracy theories, and know what is real and what is not. For that segment, we're going to be joined by Wired science writer Megan Moulton. But first, let's talk about something only slightly less apocalyptic, the Iowa caucus. Brian Barrett, why don't you take us through what happened at the beginning of this week?
2: Sure. And it, it feels like forever ago, but it was only uh, a few days ago. It was only um, on Monday that Iowa, Iowans uh, reported to high school gyms across the state to canvas uh, and caucus for their uh, preferred candidates. Um, it, it is a chaotic enough process, as anyone who watched it uh, this year and in previous years knows, um, made very much more so by the fact that this year, Iowa decided to use an app to relay results from each of the individual caucus sites back to sort of the mothership where the uh, democratic leaders were hanging out. Um, There are a few problems with one apps in and of themselves are buggy. Anyone who has ever used software knows that software has bugs. But I think the bigger problem Here is that everything was very secretive. Iowa did not share the app with the Department of Homeland Security, who had asked to take a look. They didn't let security professionals vet it, uh, and they didn't really teach people how to use it even. Uh, It was sort of bizarre. I think that you've got this confluence of things where, even under the best of circumstances, using this app would have been a bad idea, but they sort of went for the worst of circumstances instead. Another example of that, you can keep ticking them down, But they made it so that you couldn't get the app through an app store. You had to sideload it through sort of Apple and Android's enterprise system, which is like it's a complicated process for people who are not natively tech interested. And even for people who are, it can be a few more hoops than you're used to. Um, It was just a mess. So you had an app that was hard to use by people who didn't know how to get it and didn't want to use it, which after all that ended up breaking and not reporting the results the way that it was supposed to. So sort of a mess on top of a mess on top of a mess. And I will say the silver lining to all of this, and I think the real valuable lesson going down as you look at future primaries and even for states that caucus, is that Iowa kept a paper backup of every single vote. And that's the one thing that every election security person will tell you, that is the only way to ensure the integrity of the vote. So if you are going to pile on ridiculous, unnecessary tech to things, which God knows in America, we love doing that, uh, at least keep that paper back up, because that's the only way you're really going to know that you got it right at the end. Unfortunately, Iowa did that.
0: Brian, do we have a sense of why the Iowa Democratic Party did want to try this you know, more technical version of counting votes? Like, what? what's the impetus for this if we're ultimately just going to end up relying on the paper ballots or some type of scanning system?
2: Yeah, so I guess the, the app came from, I, th- I, I believe it was probably well-intentioned and they wanted to streamline the process. The app came from a company called Shadow, which was funded by another company called Acronym, which was founded by a bunch of former Clinton digital staff from her 2016 campaign. And you can sort of imagine the pitch, right? It's like, look, I know you've got this crazy, complicated caucus process, instead of doing stuff by hand and calling on the phone, why don't you just have this app where you can just punch it in and go and then be done with your night. Uh, so you can see the intention of saying, well, this will clearly make things faster. Um, and you can see also, especially if you are not especially tech savvy, that sounds great. But if you understand that these things invariably have issues, especially if you don't take the time to test them, especially if you don't uh, you know, dig into their functionality and make sure that users know how to use them, uh, you're going to run into trouble. So I, I can see how the pitch might have worked. It is baffling that Iowa did not let more people poke and prod this thing uh, before it went into live use.
0: And what are the results so far? We've seen trickling out, like 62% of the vote was in a couple days ago. What's the latest?
2: Uh, I, you know I think as of as we're recording this, it's still undetermined. And actually, the latest latest is that the head of the DNC, Tom Perez, has called for Iowa to re-canvas uh, the, the results. So not re but count all the votes again and go to all of the things again, because there are so many irregularities just in terms of, you know, it's a sort of a, a little bit of a tricky mathematical formula that they use. So we might be looking at a, at a recount uh, full stop. I think right now Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg are, are both basically in the lead, uh, but, and I, a recount will probably Hold that up, I assume, but we don't really have exact numbers yet, still.
0: And we should note that our Wired colleague, Gilad Edelman, has written about how New Hampshire has come out and said that it plans to go totally low tech in its upcoming caucus. Mike, what's your take on this? Well,
1: you know, I think it's really interesting that as a society, we have been sort of trained to get results immediately. You know, like you press a button and you get a result. And voting has uh, been pretty. Pretty quick over the years. Like, we pretty much know who's going to win by the end of the night, just because the people who study these things can make the most accurate predictions and based on, you know, not everybody reporting. Uh, And, you know, The important thing to note here is that everybody's vote did get counted as Brian, as you said, you know, there was a paper backup and there was no problem with people's votes actually being tallied. It's the reporting of those votes back to the mothership that got slowed down and they had to do it by phone. They had to do it the old fashioned way. And with the news media and with the people actually in Iowa and the candidates themselves, everybody just like itching to get the final result. And they had to wait days and days to get it. It really felt like, you know why is this happening in 2020? This feels like a problem that they had in the 1940s. But in fact, it's like, That is the way that you can guarantee that these things are going to get done properly is doing them slowly and carefully. And I think that's fine. Um, It just felt really incongruous with the way that we expect information to be delivered to us in today's society. The other thing is that it really underscores the um, lack of faith in technology for voting. Like mobile voting is something that has been on everybody's lips for the last few elections. Uh, Voting machines uh, that tabulate votes electronically instead of mechanically or manually with a pen, uh, are things that we are constantly dealing with security problems around. You know, we're sort of slow to adopt them for that reason. And I think that a situation like this is only going to make it more difficult for us to move forward into electronic voting because our trust in the process when electronics are involved have been eroded. It also gives opponents within the party and opposition parties Uh, an opportunity to point and say they don't know what they're doing, it's a huge mess. Look
0: how dysfunctional this is.
1: And not only that, but this election can be called illegitimate because of that.
0: Exactly. I think that with technology there's an assumption sometimes psychologically that because time has passed and certain things have evolved that it's just better. I mean, there was some usage of this kind of technology in the 2016 Iowa caucus. I think Microsoft had an application or some type of software that was deployed then. And there were some reports of glitches, but for the most part, it was it was certainly more functional than this turned out to be. So the assumption would kind of be that over the past four years, as technology has evolved, improved, gotten better, we're, we're all more of us are using smartphones, right? I mean, literally around the world, more of us are using smartphones. And more of this technology has become mainstream, that therefore it would even become, we're sort of just assimilated into our lives in different ways, and we're more capable of handling it. That's actually not the case. If anything, technology has gotten more complicated. Um, there are more concerns about the effects of platforms and software like on our lives. Um, and people are overwhelmed by how much technology is in our lives. So you can't necessarily expect that just because a portion of the population has become more digitally savvy, that therefore, this kind of app should be used in any type of critical voting process.
1: Yeah,
2: I think one. Just one last little notice to make everybody worried, because why else would I be here? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there are there was paper this time. There are lots of states that have no paper backup and don't plan on having it. And a study from last fall from the Brennan Center uh, out of NYU estimated about 16 million votes are going to be cast in the 2020 presidential election with no paper backup whatsoever. And a lot of those votes are going to be on systems that are still running, say, Windows 7 or even Windows XP, neither of which Microsoft supports with security backups. So when things go wrong, because they will go wrong, the important thing is being able to fix it. We've got way too many places in the U.S. right now where there's no way to fix it.
1: Well, that's a very sobering thought. Thank you for that, Brian.
2: Um, I'll see you guys in a year and a
0: half.
1: I'm happy that you're going to stick around for the second half of the show because we're going to take a break now. And when we come back, we are going to talk about the coronavirus outbreak with Wired Science writer Megan Multaney. Welcome back. As the coronavirus spreads, it has caused panic and chaos across the world. Of course, there is a human toll. By official counts, 563 people have died so far, all but two of those in mainland China, while more than 28,000 people have been infected worldwide. But the virus has also destabilized places far away from the infection zones. Joining us to talk about this is Wired staff writer Megan Multaney. Hello, Megan. Hey, Mike. Uh, please tell us more about what's going on with the coronavirus today.
3: Yeah. So it's, it's really hard to believe that it's only been five weeks since Chinese health authorities like first reported, they were investigating this cluster of mysterious pneumonia-like illnesses, and and as we were kind of following along, it, it went from being just a couple dozen of these cases that we were watching um, in early January to this thing just absolutely exploding. And the worst of it right now really is in the city of Wuhan, which is about eleven million people in central China. They've seen the majority of cases, the majority of deaths. Um, that area, which has been on government lockdown now for a few weeks, is like in full crisis mode. So the hospitals are overwhelmed. People are forced to stay in their homes. They've been racing to erect these designated coronavirus field hospitals and makeshift shelters. And so as those have actually gotten finished this week, the latest is that officials just ordered a roundup of all infected residents of Wuhan. So we're kind of expecting to see a mass movement of people to these quarantine camps starting soon. So that's what's happening in Wuhan. Um, You know, kind of elsewhere, the virus has spread to 28 other countries, but so far those cases. Have been quite limited, and there's been limited local transmission. The U.S., you know, here we only have 12 confirmed cases so far, and only one of those was a case that was unrelated to travel in China. Um, but nevertheless, the U.S. officials have, you know, said last week that they were preparing as if this were a pandemic, and so kind of they've they've actually announced a series of aggressive measures in the last week, including mandatory 14-day quarantines for any U.S. citizens returning home from travels uh, to the province that Wuhan is in, which is called Hubei, Um, and they also instituted a travel ban. So they're refusing any non-citizens who've been to China in the last two weeks entry into the country. So that's kind of where we're at right now.
1: So one of the things that we're tracking here at Wired is uh, the ripple effects that uh, the coronavirus outbreak is having across the economy because of these travel bans that you mentioned and the forced quarantines. Um, it oddly happened right during the lead up to the Lunar New Year, which happens all over Asia. Um, that started on January 25th and it ends, the. it's like a holiday, it's a two-week holiday and it usually ends right around now, uh, the first weekend in February, first or second weekend in February. And there's always a big push in manufacturing and in shipping inside of the electronics industry, uh, things like computers and smartphones and OLED panels. Uh, the factories that produce those things, which are largely concentrated in China, uh, there's usually a big push right before the Lunar New Year where they ramp up production because the factory shut down and everybody goes home for the holidays and then comes back two weeks later. Well, you know, this year workers were sent home, factories were shut down early, and then they're probably not going to reopen this week or next week because of uh, the fears that it could help spread the virus if they come back. Also, if there's a travel ban, that means that um, planes... And ships carrying things to other countries are not taking off Uh, people who would normally fly to China for business meetings and Chinese who would be flying to other countries for business meetings. That's not happening. So it's really in Asia. A lot of things have just ground to a halt.
0: And the impact of that on the U.S. is not theoretical at this point. And there's this weird juxtaposition that's happening now where we are talking about something that could be classified as a pandemic and people are dying. And yet, you know, people are like, but what about the economy? Yeah. And we're in the middle of earnings season. Uh, There are tech companies right now that are reporting over the past couple of weeks. They've been reporting their quarterly earnings. And we've seen that at least... uh, at least a quarter of them have, you know, if not more, at this point, have mentioned the coronavirus is something that could impact the next quarter uh, of business. And we've seen Google shut down its offices in certain regions in Asia, Apple shutting down its stores, and um, I mean, yeah, there are days when we see reports like that's the latest report on what's happening with the coronavirus, and then it's oh, and AirPods production will be impacted too. Um, so there's a pretty, you know, serious sort of Trickling down effect that's happening here. Um, But, Megan, one of the themes that we've been exploring this week is not just about what happens when something goes wrong, like when a virus breaks out or when a hugely symbolic democratic election process fails, (laughs) but also what happens when information about these kinds of events gets scrambled online. And our colleague Emma Gray Ellis has a story on wired.com this week about all the different conspiracy theories that have been floating around about. The coronavirus um, and some of them are are pretty wild so i guess i'm just wondering how people can sort through all of this information and determine what's real and what's not especially when some of the source information is coming from china where we know that there is a bit of a wall when it comes to the media
3: yeah, so you know we're we're relying on official reports coming out of the Chinese National Health Commission for for these numbers. There are a number of scientists um, and epidemiologists who believe that those numbers are actually much higher, in part because we with a new virus, we don't really understand, you know, what some of the early signs are. And so maybe people with mild symptoms weren't going to hospitals. But at this point in China, it's really because those hospitals are overwhelmed. And there have been reports out of Wuhan that there aren't enough diagnostic testing kits. And so doctors actually there feel that the real numbers are, are much higher. So that's, that's kind of one thing, you know, to keep, to keep in mind. Um, you know, here in the US, I think we, you know, we tell people to rely on sources like CDC, the WHO, kind of these organizations um, that have, you know, that have a reputation as being kind of health authorities. The WHO did say in a meeting this week that as part of their kind of trying to combat a lot of the misinformation around the coronavirus, they're working with a number of tech companies, including Facebook and Google, uh, to try to make sure that their stuff is showing up, you know, in search results and, um, and just trying to kind of stop a lot of the misinformation that is being spread, um, you know, for Chinese residents, there's the added, you know, issue of censorship or, uh, of the media. So there was actually a report this week that one of the doctors who had tried to blow the whistle about this virus and was arrested for spreading rumors was basically vindicated as like, you know, saying that this was what it was, and and he actually just died um, this morning. And so there's, mm. I think there's there are real reasons for there to be mistrust about the official information kind of coming out of China, but it's hard to, that sort of thing is, is pretty hard for us to parse on this side of the wall. Um, What I will say is that, you know, there are some big part, part of the reason this is getting driven is also that it's a new virus. We don't know stuff about it, and we don't know where it came from. And that kind of central mystery is, as Emma like very aptly describes it, you know, kind of the perfect recipe for this like state of fear in which we're willing to believe kind of whatever hypothesis we come across.
2: Uh, Meg, I guess what what I sort of have been wondering with this is I think there's, and, and I think you've spoken to this already pretty well, but there seems to be people aren't really able, even beyond the misinformation, aren't really able to calibrate how concerned they should be. And there's, especially I think you see a lot of people saying, well, influenza, much worse than it. But, but you know, is is that even a useful way to think of it, right? I think comparing it to other, like influenza and other common diseases, or is, you know, how, how should people try to grapple with it? And, and, you know, when did you have any sense of, like, how long it takes for that sort of better grip on so that mystery uh, might take?
3: You know, I think, unfortunately, we're still... Very much in the beginning of this, like we have more, a lot more data than we had two weeks ago, um, but there's still a lot that is is unknown. So some of the big questions um, that remain are how how do asymptomatic people pass on? the virus. Um, We've seen a few, there was a, we've seen a few cases in Germany and Japan that suggest that that's possible. And that would drastically change kind of what the projections have been about the transmissibility and how many people might be impacted. So, you know, everyone cautions at the beginning of an outbreak, like whatever numbers you see, like they're going to change. And I think we're still very much in that period. Um, You know, that being said, flu does kill like thousands of people um, and on the same on the same token like we have a flu vaccine we don't have a vaccine for this coronavirus we don't have any treatments there are clinical trials that are already underway in China for some antivirals but right now like people had they if they are sick they're just being kind of treated as best they can for the pneumonia or whatever symptoms they have um, so I think, In the US, the risk is still quite low and there's no reason to panic. There's no reason to buy masks. There's no reason to, you know, think this is going to grip, you know, our public health system is quite strong and robust, Um, but it is definitely, I have never seen a CDC official refer to something as a pandemic potential in my lifetime. So I think, I think that's worth keeping track of. But um, no reason to panic at this point.
1: All right. Well, thank you, Megan Multaney, for bringing us up to speed on uh, the coronavirus and where we stand.
3: You're very welcome. Thanks for having me.
1: Um, Are you going to join us for recommendations?
3: Would you like me to join you for recommendations?
1: (laughs) Absolutely. We would love it. Let's take a quick break and then we'll come back. All right. Welcome back to the show. This is the final segment where we all recommend something from our lives that we have been loving and enjoying that we would like to tell other people about. Megan, why don't you go first?
3: Sure. So I've been trying to de-stress a little bit by watching season two of Sex Education on Netflix. Uh, And so far I'm four episodes in and it is just as awesome as season one was uh there's already we've already got some incredible new additions to the cast um but of course like the old stalwarts are kind of back at their usual shenanigans and it's just like it's just the most i I still don't understand where in england this takes place where it's sunny every day and it's like a pacific northwest rainforest and like everyone's beautiful (laughs) that's the only that's like my only quibble with the show other than that it's perfect as far as i'm concerned
1: (laughs) and it's on netflix is that right
3: it's on netflix yeah nice
1: Uh, Brian Barrett, what is your recommendation?
2: I'm going to go with a a throwback of a book. I I recommended a book a previous time I was on this uh, podcast that Mike, I think, did not like that much. So I'm going back in for another book recommendation.
1: Wait, was it the Northwater? Yeah. Oh, no, I love that book.
2: Oh, oh, good. Well, then I'm trying to go two for two.
1: All right. I was I was Mm -hmm. just surprised that uh, somebody as um, uh, as delightful to hang out with as Brian Barrett was recommending a book that was so uh, emotionally traumatic.
2: Yeah, well, that's, that's just what's on the inside here, Mike. That's just the the bleakness uh, shining through. Um, this is less violent and less has less to do with whaling. It's called The End of Vandalism uh, by a guy named Tom Drury, who is uh, just a phenomenal and, I think, underappreciated writer. It came out in the mid-'90s. Um, it, it, it reads like a sort of, you know, a small-town narrative, but it is incredibly deadpan and funny and off-kilter, and great. So I would recommend people to start reading Tom Drury, start there.
1: Uh, and But really, uh, all of it's good. Wonderful.
0: Let's add it to the Wired Book Club.
1: <laughs> Lauren, what is your recommendation?
0: My recommendation is The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel Season 3 on Amazon Prime Video. I'm a little behind on this. It became available in early December. It dropped in December, as the cool people say. And um, I'm just catching up. And I'm actually only uh, through Episode 4. At this point, it's a little predictable, but the show is so, it's stylized so well, and the dialogue is so perfectly executed that it's really a delight to watch and a nice break from stories about Iowa caucus apps failing and pandemics. <laughs> Mike? Mike? Last but not least, what's yours?
1: I would like to recommend a podcast. It is called Freak Flag Flying, and it's an interview podcast between uh, Wired contributor and author Steve Silberman and songwriter and rock star David Crosby. Um, Crosby and Silberman are friends. They've been friends for a couple of decades, and they sit down to talk about David Crosby's career. Uh, it's uh, an interview show basically intercut with music uh, because they talk a lot about David Crosby's music and the music of the people that he that he works with and they talk about uh, his entire career which is like the birds and Crosby Stills and Nash and then Crosby Stills Nash and young and then a solo career and then a period of time where he was uh, had a very terrible drug addiction and then he's come out of retirement in the 21st century and put out some really great contemporary music so it's like two old friends sitting down and one of them just happens to be a rock star who is has lived this incredible life of uh, big highs and big lows, and it's just a, a delight to listen to. It's also um, very well paced, very well edited. It's not chronological. It kind of hops around all over the place. They talk about politics. If you are a David Crosby fan, you probably already know about it, and you've probably already listened to it. If you're like a casual fan, like maybe you know some of his music, and you know who he is, and you'd like to learn a little bit more about him, It's a great way in. Steve Silberman really knocked it out of the park with this one. So Freak, Flag, Flying. And it's like four episodes. You can listen to the whole thing in under five hours.
0: That's great. You can listen to it on your commute.
1: That's right. If you have a five-hour commute. That's right.
0: (laughs) Or an hour every day for a week or something like that.
1: Something like that. All right. That is our show for this week. Thank you to Megan Multaney.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: And thank you, Brian Barrett. Thank you, guys. And thank you all for listening. If you have any feedback, you can find us all on Twitter. Just check the show notes. This show is produced by Boone Ashworth. And our consulting executive producer is Alex Kappelman. Goodbye, and we'll be back next week. Hi, everyone. Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take podcast from Bloomberg News. Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom. Like how AI will upend your life or why China's targeting the U.S. dollar and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh, boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.